today's series, uh, in the second part of this, last week we talked about how do you know God exists. And personally, I know because my mother told me and I believed her, <laughs> really. Genesis 1-1. And uh, my mother never lied. Um, but some people don't take my mom's word for it. Um, so they need other evidence. And we showed a lot of scientific evidence last week that uh, really comes to the conclusion that if you, if you believe God doesn't exist, you have an enormous amount of faith in something besides God. Um, because our faith is anchored in who God really is and what he's done and, and all the cool things we studied in science last week. But peop- there are people who believe God exists. They just don't think he's personal. They think he kind of wound everything up, set it off in the space, and said, good luck with that. And a lot of people, a lot of people, talked to a, a little lady yesterday. I delivered some flowers yesterday to a, a widow lady. And, uh, and she expressed to me that she doesn't understand... Um, how God interacts with individuals just doesn't register to her. She said, I know there are churches that believe that. And she looked at me and she goes, I'm pretty sure yours does. And I said, we do. And she said, I just don't get that. And I said, well, you need to come to church then and here. But, but truthfully, people just don't get that. And uh, they have very unique views of God. And uh, we were talking about this uh, around the dinner table the other day. And my son said, uh, my son Josh said, you need to show them that everybody loves Raymond. How many of y'all like the Everybody Loves Raymond show? Isn't that a funny show? We crack up at it. We have about two-thirds of them memorized, I think, and I can just walk through the living room and kind of quote it as it goes by me. So, um, But uh, they got a great sense of humor on that show. And uh, there was, a, there was a, one of the shows that they did where it was called uh, The Meaning of Life, and little Allie had asked uh, Raymond and his wife to come up with the meaning of life, and it stumped them. And there's this little segment I wanted you to see. So... So uh, we're going to show you that, and uh, kind of it'll get get us started today. Can you please stop? Look, it turns out Allie doesn't want to know how we get here. She wants to know why we're here, why God put us on Earth, and she's waiting for Ray to answer her. What's wrong with you? It's simple. Oh, okay, yeah. We're going to learn the meaning of life from a guy who once threw his shoe at a swan. <laughs> That's called protecting your sandwich. <laughs> Listen to me. Here's what life is. You're born, you go to school, you go to work, you die. That's it. That's all. Cannoli Marie. (laughs) Listen, we're not talking about what we do while we're here, Dad. Yeah, yeah, the big question is why we're here in the first place. You know, I've spent many a night lying in bed thinking about this kind of stuff. Life's imponderables. You need to find yourself abroad in pronto. Where are we? Where are we in the big scheme of things? Don't gotta be a pretty one. Just grab something. I think Allie's too young to be worrying about things like this. No, I'm proud of her. I love it that she's such an independent thinker. If she's so independent, why can't she figure this out herself? Just get up there and tell her that God put us on earth to help each other. It's simple, it's direct, it's a good way for her to live her life. What are you talking about? That doesn't answer anything. What are you telling me that God said, hmm, earth, let's see, what should I put there? Hmm, that's your God? (laughs) Yeah. No way. It's got to be deeper and cool. Hello, I'm God. Raymond, I think you're a wonderful God. Thank you. Thank you. So what did God say? Hey, uh, I'm going to put some humans on Earth so they can help each other. 
Or I could just skip humans altogether and go hit a bucket of balls. <laughs> oh, I know. It's all in the Bible. You ever think about space? <laughs> what is it? Is it really endless? I mean, if you had a spaceship, could you go flying and flying through space forever? Why don't you give it a shot? <laughs> no. I'm not kidding around here. I mean, how could space go on forever? And if it doesn't, then what's at the end, huh? Stop it, Robbie. You'll give yourself a tummy ache. <laughs> what about the beginning of time? What was it before that? Before time? Nothing? I mean, what is nothing? How could there be nothing? This doesn't bother anybody else? It might take me a minute. A minute more, Marie. Religious scholars spend their entire lives trying to answer this question. You're not just going to flip through the Bible and find the meaning of life. Oh, ye of little faith. That's in here somewhere, too. There it is. Where there are no oxen, the crib remains empty. But large crops come through the strength of the bull. <laughs> That's got nothing to do with this. No. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> you know, the fruit fly only lives one day. Okay, yeah. One day. What's his meaning of life, huh? Maybe there's no meaning of life for any one of us. I mean, really. Am I any different than the fruit fly? <laughs> the fruit part's the same. <laughs> Robert, the fruit fly doesn't question why he's here. That's what makes us different. And I don't know, maybe that's kind of the meaning of life. Never knowing the answer, but always wondering about it. So, so God made us smart enough to know that there's an answer, but not smart enough to figure it out? Come on! <laughs> That's really the view that a lot of people have of God. That he's up there, he kind of just spun all this out, and he leaves us without answers. Um, I hope you saw last week, uh, when we talked into some of the science issues, that he's actually exposing himself, even through science, he's exposing himself to, to us. And he's making it crystal clear that he is the divine creator, sustainer, uh, beginning and end of life. So um, there's lots of different views of God, and most people think he's real, but that he's not interested in, in our present-day situation. He doesn't care about you personally. He doesn't care about your aches and pains, your family, your needs. So we're going to define that today. I'm going to give you four truths, four truth to prove that God is for you. But before I do that, I need to establish with you, I'm going to actually let Cody do this because he loves um, apologetics. We need to establish that the Bible is fundamentally accurate. And uh, so I'm going to let him spend a few minutes with you and share how crystal clear it is that even our Bible is not some mythological ancient document that can't be um, understood historically and as a literary uh, tool, but it's actually a, a divine gift to us. So he's going to share that with you this morning. All right, as Stan said, I love apologetics, so this stuff is pretty awesome to me. Um, so I'm going to try my best to stay in the realm of my time frame and not take 
a sermon and put it before a sermon that Stan's going to preach. <laughs> so um, I'm going to give you three points of a survey of three points of evidence for the Bible of how reliable it actually is as a document that we can believe in. Um, it'll be from the standpoint of archaeology, standpoint of history and about root, as written by historians, and then literacy as in the documents of its time and ones that we believe in to be true and inerrant, so to speak, as far as they don't have errors from original to copies. So to start with, I'm going to start in the archaeological um, debate side of it, I guess to say, um, which is pretty interesting because it's all... The archaeology is about the digs, and it's about finding stuff. So you actually have a hard proof, hardcore proof of what you're looking for. Um, temples and tombs are proof of that of archaeological digs. So we have points that come up in the Bible that are very known now due to these di- these kind of digs. Um, I'll start with the book of Acts, which was written by Luke. Um, there's actually 84 points in just the last 16 chapters of Acts that you can pull out. Now think about that. 16 chapters and you have 84 points that have been proven by a science that we have. Okay, So Luke includes these details in Acts because he's a, he's a physician. So he's very detail-oriented from which if you read his writings. He almost has points in there that wouldn't even make sense just for the fact that they're in there. He, he names certain people, certain places, names landmarks to dictate where these points are at and what time era these people ruled in. So you've got 84 points there. Uh, I'll give you two examples of, of the ones that are there. One of which is the right location of the river. And I'm not going to try to say the name of the river because I will say it wrong. Me and my wife could not figure it out, so I will not try the right location of the river near Philippi. That may seem minor, but locations of rivers change over time due to the the erosion and the way they work. So they actually have the right location for the time error there. He has that dictated out in the book of Acts. Now, was that necessarily for the gospel of Acts or the, the book of Acts? Does that perpetuate the gospel for that sense? Not necessarily, but... In our day, it helps us be able to stand on the book of Acts because of that. Second example, the best shipping lanes at the time. Everything was done in sailboats. They didn't have motors back then. So you had to catch drafts and winds to know which way, which way the currents carried the best way to get you through. So you have that, knowing where it's at, you have to actually be there at the time to realize where those shipping lanes fall to know the best route. So Luke has these incredible details worked into to Acts. He has them worked into his gospel, uh, the book of Luke, as well. Um, so we have amazing detail that's proven there. Now, another book of the Bible has the same kind of proofs, uh, not quite as many points, but has, a, has just as many, or many proofs behind it uh, of why it can be fact, and we can stand on it solid. This is the book of John. This is actually a synoptic gospel book that we're looking at this time. So, you've got the book of John. This is from starting in chapter 2, there's 
right at 60, 59 to be exact, points found that are historically proven events or places. So you've got from 2 to the end, what, what was it, 20, 21? Okay, my numbers eluded me this morning. So you go from 2 to 21, okay, all of those chapters there, right at 18, that have 59 points, almost 60 points in it there. Well, you've got names of rulers, names of certain places that existed at the time that may no longer exist that lay in ruins today. Um, exactly their exact location, who ruled, how they ruled, so on and so forth. So um, I, I, I've got two points, uh, two examples of this as well. Given the, um, yeah, in the book of John, we have the miracle from water to wine. Okay? So that's kind of odd, but that actually helps us stand on an archaeological basis. Because given the early Christian tendency toward being pulled away from indulging in anything and just diving off deeply into something, the wine miracle seems as an unlikely invention, even for a wedding, just because of the Christian thing. Just kind of pull away and say, I'm not going to indulge in that. But for Jesus, the Messiah, in the religion, in our, in our relationship that we have here, to make that as a big point stands out. Second one, sudden and severe squalls are common in the Sea of Galilee. The story of Jesus walking on the water, the sudden waves and wind that come up is actually proven to be something that actually happens in that area, whether, well, whether rather commonly. Okay? So, so we have the archaeological side. Um, now, there's, that's just a survey of two different points with a couple examples. There's plenty more out there. Please do some research into it. If you, uh, if you don't believe me, please prove me wrong. I dare you. Uh, that would be a great challenge for me. So the second one, we're going to go into the historic proof. Okay? There are ten known non-Christian sources that mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. Now, that may seem like a long time period for us. It's like none of us live, no person lived 150 years, even at the time of Jesus. That was predate his life here on earth. But when you look at something that is to prove validity, to prove its accuracy, 150 years is actually a small time frame when you come into the historical and literacy side of it. So, You've got 10 known non-Christian sources within 150 years that state and talk about Jesus. Now, this isn't the Bible writers or any of the disciples. Uh, these are Romans. These are rulers outside of the Christian faith of the time. Now, the interesting fact of this is that there's only nine non-Christian sources that speak of Caesar. Um, some of my history buffs might may, may really recognize that name because that is actually the, he was alive and the Roman emperor of the time around Jesus. So the fact that Jesus has one more citation than the Roman ruler of the time kind of stands out to me. When I first saw that, it took the breath from me. Because you would think somebody that was a Roman emperor, the one that ruled, the empire that ruled the known world of the time, or eventually ruled the known world pretty much, that he has one less citation than Jesus of Nazareth kind of stood out to me. And this is by non-Christian people. And if you add in the Christian 
sources, you get about 43 to 10 this way. So you actually have 33 more citations of Jesus than the ruler of Rome in the same, when they lived at the same time. That kind of gives away. Okay, so uh, then uh, these are names here. I'm not leaving this out. I didn't forget. They're actually names of historians, or just a few of them, that are non-Christian historians. Or uh, the Talmud is actually a document, um, I think, wrote by several people, if I'm mistaken, or put together through the years. So yeah, all these non-Christian examples, uh, historians, that are mentioning Jesus. Um, I think I, I have about six up here. I'm going to talk about one briefly, um, just because he's really interesting. Flavius Josephus. Um, I love the name. I think that's the first thing that caught my attention about him. Um, but he's actually a Jew who, in a revolt rising against Rome, surrendered in 67 AD, and then became a historian for the emperor of Rome. Think about that. He's a Jew that now becomes a historian for the Rome Empire. For the Roman Empire. Well, in the course of that, he writes the Jewish history as well from a Jewish perspective. Now, he makes mention of Jesus, but he never says Jesus is the Messiah, which is an interesting fact. But he does say the disciples believed he did this miracle. The disciples say he did this thing. So there is a recorded documentation of Jesus doing the miracles from a non-Christian perspective. There is documentation of Jesus being alive as well. So, the, the others, uh, Tacticus is Roman. Uh, most of these actually are Roman people uh, that would write these documentations on a semi-non-biased, I say semi because they leaned Roman, obviously, but semi-non-biased view of the time and the history. The third proof is from the literacy standpoint. Now, this was a very interesting thought when I went to think about when Stan asked me to put kind of put this together and show some proofs here before he gets off into the, the actual scripture. Because when you think of literacy, you're thinking of the actual writing. So that, that, that would fall on the historian side. Well, yeah, if you think about it that way. But that's not the exact points that we're looking at here on literacy. So to start with, for example, most of the New Testament books were written before 70 A.D., okay? That is only 40 years out from the death of Jesus. So you have most of your New Testament books were wrote in such a short time frame that it's almost impossible. That people were still alive. There was eyewitnesses still alive when the books were being wrote. So if, say, Paul wrote something that was wrong to a church, they could say, no, that's not how it happened. I was literally there when he fed the people. It was only two fish. Or whatever, okay? So there's, there could be an argument in there if there were things. There's still eyewitnesses alive when the majority of these books were wrote, wrote down. So almost the entire testament can actually be put together by the quotation of the church fathers, of three of them in, uh, specifically. Okay, so you've got Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp. Altogether, quoted 25 of the 27 New Testament books, almost for every verse. So, if they've got three, uh, and to make that point a little more clear, Clement was Roman. The other two were Asia Minor. Okay, so they're hundreds of miles out there. Well, 
the Romans, not, but Asia Minor, they're hundreds of miles away from the source of the detail historically, okay? So it's spread out. So you've got 25 of the 27 New Testament books quoted that you can actually piece together almost the entirety of those 25 books off of the three. Ignatius alone quoted most of them himself. On the back side of that, you also have that there is less time originals between the original and the surviving cop, the first surviving copy. And there was more copies made of the text. So you have the, all the letters that Paul wrote, they were copied by scribes or maybe not scribes, just people in the church to spread out. You have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have now. These things are, can be run as uh, copies to be spread apart to be passed out to other people and churches. Um, now, what, what benefit is less time from the original first surviving copy? That means there's a lower chance that there's any errors in translation or copying from the original what was meant, what was actually happened to the original. So, if you've ever played telephone, if you've got really good hearing person on the first hears it, and then very, they get it to the next person really quick, and the next person has to sit there and think about it, that third person's probably got it wrong, right? Because they have their thinking it, and they're changing it in their head, trying to get it right. So you have the same thing when you're writing something down, if you're doing it out of memory. So you've got less time. So but in the Bible's New Testament, the, there's only 25 years between the original and first copy. Now, in second place to that, to bring this point home, is Homer. 500 years between original and first surviving copy. If you've ever read Homer or people like Plato or any of the philosophies or big ancient works of literacy in school coming up or just for fun, if you're that kind of weird person that likes to read that stuff... If you read that stuff, we say that's valid, that's true. We have no problem with it because our teacher told us it's, I don't really care too much about it. That has, second place is Homer with 500 years between original and first copy that we would ever have had. Well, there's a lot more than 500 years between the original and now, and we still say it's valid, but yet we argue Bible's validity and there's only 25. Also, the number of copies helps us. The Bible, uh, New Testament, most of these numbers are run off of the New Testament. Um, but in the New Testament, there's actually 5,686 copies out that they counted out. Okay, this is second place. Homer comes in second place again with only 643. So we have thousands of copies of difference between something we say and have no problem saying this is valid. And this is perfectly okay to read. There's no problems. They don't have a misplaced punctuation. No problems there. But yet the Bible, we argue about its validity, yet it has more proof, literacy, historically, and archaeology. You know, the, the cool thing is that God literally gave us, literally gave us that many more copies um, so that one day we could explain it that way. And we could say, here, here's why I believe the Bible's accurate. Um, First of all, God says it's accurate, but you're using the Bible to prove the Bible, so there's a circular problem. But then you just go look at literature or archaeological or historical data, and you say, 
This is an impossible document apart from some divine intervention. You know, 1,700 years of writing from the beginning to the end, 40 different authors from every background there is, from every background there is. There's, you know, farmers and physicians and kings and just simple fishermen writing a document that spans 1,700 years that agrees with itself from beginning to end down to the finest details. Next week we're going to talk about uh, 300 specific prophecies that were 600 to 800 years before Jesus ever came into existence um, that were met perfectly. That's impossible to do unless God had a hand in it from beginning to end. And so so we accept the, the validity of that. Our church believes very strongly that the Bible is an inspired document by God, breathed out by God, and word for word is what he intend, what we have as a printed 66 books today is what he intends for us to study and learn about him, learn about ourselves, and grow in our faith in him. So with that said, I want to give you four truths this morning. Appreciate him declaring, or Cody sharing that. Uh, truth to us, but I want to give you four truths that say God is actually specifically for you. The first one's real simple. Just going to give you some Bible verses to to look at. They're typed into your notes for you, so you can look them up. Um, you can use them at home and study them. Psalm twenty-eight, verse seven says, "The Lord is my strength and my shield." And I looked this up a minute ago in my. Instead of just reading from my notes, I wanted to read it to you. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. So here, here's what the psalmist David is saying in Psalm twenty or Psalm uh, twenty-eight. This is a prayer by David, and he's saying, "God is the strength and my shield." He actually goes on in the next verse to say, "That's why my heart exults, and that's why I rejoice and sing." So you ever wonder why some of us like to sing? Some of you, I've noticed, really like to sing. And when you're out there, you're just singing away. You know why we like to sing? Because our heart is full of this simple truth. The Lord is my strength and my shield. We sing with all our might on Sundays uh, because God truly is that for us. And he promises to be our help and our strength. Now, Isaiah 41, verse 10, the next one, says, Do not fear. For I am with you. All this is in your handouts. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious or look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you start in Isaiah 38 and read through Isaiah all the way through chapter 42 and look for that phrase, I will hold you with my hand, my righteous right hand, he'll say sometimes, or I'll hold you up with my right hand. God's literally saying, I will hold your hand through all of this. One of the chapters in that section I'm talking about says, when you walk through the fire, when you go through the deepest water, I will be there. So God himself declares, first truth, God himself declares that he is for us. What about when we make horrible mistakes? What about when we throw ourselves into a mess beyond messes? Is he still for us? Well, here's David in Psalm 56. One of the closest followers of God is King David. You remember that? He's a man after God's own heart. It said twice of David, it said he's a man after God's own heart. And a lot of the Psalms, the one we sang this morning, step by step, a lot of the Psalms are written by David because he was so close to God, right? So Psalm 56, David writes these words, Then my enemies will turn back, verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is 
for me. David's saying, I know God's for me because he, he deals with my enemies for me. And you say, well, that's easy to say when you're the king of Israel. I mean, they were very powerful during David's rule. Very powerful. When you're the king of Israel, you can just sit on that big Israel throne, fancy downtown city of David, named after you, by the way, sit there and go, God is for me. That is not where he wrote this song. No, he wasn't the king yet. He was anointed king, but not yet appointed king. As a matter of fact, he's on the run from Saul, and there's a, there's a place in David's life where he goes to the lowest point, and it's when he literally has to... He's run so long from Saul that he gives up running from Saul, and he runs into a little town named Gath. Gath is the name of the town he runs into. There was a giant that used to live there years before this. The giant's name was Goliath. David literally ran away from Israel and into the Philistine army's capital. Him and his mighty men, they ran into their capital to seek refuge. And they end up getting captured. Now, they're just trying to hide out in the wilderness around there, and they get captured. So the mighty David, who's still a young man, is not sitting on a throne when he writes these words. He's literally had to stand before a king that could kill him. The king of Gath, Achish, the king of Gath, could have killed him. And David is sitting around that scene where his life is threatened. And it actually says, you remember this hilarious story in the Bible, where when they take David before the king, the, the soldiers take him and go, hey, Here's the guy that killed Goliath. He killed our giant, and he's supposed to be the next king of Israel. Let's just wipe him out. It'll solve our whole conflict. The Philistine conflict with Israel be solved right here. Well, David, great actor that he is, pretends to be insane. Remember, he drools into his beard, and he babbles, you know, and he scribbles, and he just acts like an idiot. And the king looks at him and goes, man, i got enough idiots surrounding me. I want him out of here. I don't need any, any other crazy people. My kingdom's full of those kind of people. And he sends him away. And you go, man, that's just weird. It is a weird story. But it saves David's life. And so David writes this song. And in his song he says, I know God is for me because I'm not dead. I'm in the enemy camp and I'm not dead yet. That means God's for me. So you don't have to be going, you don't have to do everything right. He actually should not have made the choice to go there, by the way. God doesn't want the king of Israel hanging out with the Philistines. So David was in a bad place when he still was able to declare, you know, God's still helping me. God's still protecting me and still loves me. Uh, so it's a pretty powerful deal. Now, second truth. God himself declares not just his care for us, but he actually describes his love for us in very strong terms. So I'm just going to run through uh, a couple of things with you on that. <clears throat> very strong terms. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is one of my favorite passages to reference in the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you, uh, Paul writing to the Christians at Ephesians, he actually calls them in chapter 1 the faithful ones. He's saying you're a bunch of faithful Christians. Let me tell you some good news. You, faithful Christians, once were dead in your trespasses and sin. Spiritually, there was a time, if you know Christ your Lord and Savior now, spiritually there was a time when you were dead. If you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're still dead, right? It's the land of the walking dead, that whole show with the walking dead. I used to think, man, what a great title for people who are unsaved. Our, our country is filled 
with people who are walking dead. They're not given life, eternal life, and life of hope and joy and peace. They haven't been given the eternal life of Christ, and they're literally walking around as dead people in our society. Well, Jesus, or Paul actually says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked, walking dead, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Used to, before you knew Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'll ask the same question I ask every time I do this passage. Can a dead person help himself? No. Never seen a dead person help himself. If they're truly dead, they cannot help themselves. Dead heart doctors do not give themselves CPR. It just doesn't happen. can't happen. Okay? So if we were spiritually dead, we were in deep trouble because dead things don't help themselves. But here's the favorite part of it. Among them, uh, 2 verse 3, it says, <clears throat> Among them we too all formerly lived. Here's our sin. In the lust of the flesh, indulging our desires of the flesh and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of them. Okay, now here's one of the best buts in the Bible. Uh, a couple of us as pastors always talk about doing a series called The Greatest Butts in the Bible. Okay? It'd it make a great headline. When it, you just don't see it on a billboard? Pastor Stan's going to preach on The Greatest Butts in the Bible. And uh, don't try to think of graphics for that because we're not going to do that. But, but the greatest, here's the, one of the greatest ones in your Bible. If you mark things in your Bible, you need to circle these next two words. It says, but God. Now we were... Dead in our trespasses and sins, we were in terrible shape. It says we lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging our desires, sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Because of his great love. The Apostle Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing this stuff down. And he's going, man, I don't even know how to put adjectives with all of this. It's not just his love, it's his great love. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. The the King James says, he quickened us together, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's how much we're loved. God said, even when you're a mess and you're in sin and you're sons of disobedience and you're living in terrible place before me, But God, because of his rich mercy and great love, his great love, he saved us by grace. Amen? So, a couple of great quotes. I love Brennan Manning. He just recently passed away. He's a great writer, uh, theologian, uh, former Franciscan monk. And uh, just a, he's a mess before God. And I played some clips for you before of some of his sermons, but a book I'm reading now about him, or about uh, some of his teachings He wrote this, the revolutionary thinking that God loves me as I am and not as I should be. Think about that. God loves me as I am, not as I should be, requires radical rethinking and profound emotional readjustments. Small wonder that the late spiritual giant Basil Hume of London claimed that Christians find it easier to believe that God exists than God loves them. I have two people I've been counseling for almost 10 years now. Spend, spend time with them occasionally. They never come here. Don't know if they ever will. Pray they will, but they don't. Um, I just just run into them all the time when they're in trouble and they need help. And I have bo- both of them believe God exists, but he really can't love somebody like me. And I can't tell you how many times I've tried to express to them, you just got to surrender to the love. If you would just accept the truth that God loves you like he really does, 
And I've let them read a bunch of stuff and shared with them, but it just breaks my heart because I, I agree with this uh, author, Basil Hume. He says, um, most people believe that God exists, but they have a very hard time believing God loves them. Isn't that sad? You know what's going to change that for most people? Us, as Christians. We have to believe it so strongly that it actually just emanates from us and we constantly can prove God's love by how we live, by how we love them. Brennan Manning wrote this quote. It just I was sitting in a tree stand just about a month ago when I read this quote. And I think I tweeted it and Facebooked it and everything else after I read it. It says, in human beings, love is a quality, a highly prized virtue. In human beings, love is a quality. But in God, love is his identity. 1 John 4, 8, God is... He's identified by agape love. That's how you identify him. It means everything about him is love. There's nothing he does that's not loving. Nothing he does that's not loving. For us, it's a character quality. We can be loving. We may not be so loving today, right? That can't be true of God. There's not a day that goes by where God is not so loving today. You understand? Because it's identity of who he actually is rather than just a virtue like it is for us. Now, uh, James 1.17 says, He is the Father of all good gifts. Everything good comes down from the Father of lights. And, and James is saying, half-brother of Jesus, by the way, he's saying everything you have, everything you enjoy is because of the good gifts that God's given you. Now, I'm just going to take just a second and say, I want you to just name some things you really enjoy to do, like, or eat, or any of it. Just some stuff that's just great. I mean, you just love German chocolate cake. Everybody knows me. German chocolate cake. Woo-hoo. Okay? Okay? Bow hunting. I love shooting. I love archery. Leo and I. Where's Leo? Oh, Leo. Leo and I just love to go out here and just shoot the arrows. It's just a blast. Okay? Ice cream. That's right. Shows, doesn't it? Amen. All right. Somebody else? What's something you just... What's something that you just... Chocolate. Bacon? Woo-hoo. Bacon. Yeah. Bacon. Man. Say again? Strawberry cake. I can I can, I'll never forget John eating over two thirds of one in a, a pancake back here. I don't remember what we were doing that night, but we had something going on, and, and I guess your wife had made it and brought it, and you were kind enough to cut it up in little pieces and give one or two pieces away, and then you just got into it, man. And he just ate and ate and ate. Okay, what else? What do you What do you just love to do or love to enjoy? Singing. Amen. Amen as she coughed her way all the way to church this morning. Bless you. Bless her for coming anyway. Okay? But singing, don't you love that? And good food. Every good gift. What about your family? Don't you love hanging out with your family and your children? I just love being together sometimes. We just get around the table and laugh and cut up and have a great time. Don't you love that? By the way, in March we're going to do a series on the family, so I'm going to teach some family values, and even my kids are going to get a chance to share some of the things in our home that may, I may not want them to share. So, <laughs> But... Isn't it amazing? Every good thing you have. How about air conditioning? Okay? I've been to several places on the planet that don't have air conditioning. I've been to some places that don't have ice. When you order, you don't get ice. I don't like that. Okay? I'm not going to ever survive Europe long because they don't give you ice. When you order any drink, you get no ice. You order a Coke at McDonald's in downtown Budapest, you get no ice. You have to ask for ice, and when you do, they look at you weird, and they put two little pieces in there, which almost make it, you know, to you when they hand it to you. It's like, let's dissolve now. Okay, thanks Thanks for that, though. <laughs> right? They just don't do ice. That's freaky to me, but I love ice in my drink. 
Now, who gives us all those good gifts? You think we just create all that ourselves and make all that up? No. God created chocolate. Everybody knows that, right? Woo-hoo! God created chocolate and told me, you're going to like this, right? I mean, he created all that good stuff for us, all the flavors we love, all the smells that we like so much, all the beauty of flowers and, and the sunset. He makes all of that and says, just enjoy this. Please, I'm the father of all good gifts. Anytime you laugh, you know, anytime you just laugh, belly laugh or just giggle, anytime you do that, it's God saying, "Have a, enjoy that. I just want you to enjoy life, right? He's the father of all good gifts. So the second truth is that God declares himself to be for us and to love us. And he gives us all these good gifts. There's a passage in, in the Gospels where he says, look, if an evil father would give good gifts to his children, if an evil father would do that, how much more? He says this, how much more do <laughs> you think me being the holy, perfect father is going to give you good gifts? And of course, the greatest gift he ever gave us was his son to pay for our sins because we couldn't pay that debt ourselves, right? So I want you to see that in the next truth. Um, God doesn't just care about you individually. He doesn't just care about your taste buds, you know, or about how much you like archery, if you're me. He cares about your soul because it's your most valuable possession. If you need help with that, November series is online now. Go back into our November series uh, message list and uh, watch a whole series or listen to a whole series of iPod, I whatever they're called, podcast. Sorry, listen to those things online that talk about your most valuable possession is your soul. And if you're not taking care of your soul, um, your life's going to be stressed. And if you'll take care of your soul, God will give you joy and peace and rest. That's all online. But Ephesians chapter 1, just listen to these verses. And I'm just going to go through them really strong with you, really bullet point them very fast. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, there by the will, to the saints at Ephesus, and here's where he calls them, the faithful in Christ. Ephesus, the faithful church in Christ. Good job, Ephesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the Father. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm, verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, here's the list. Verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is a whole doctrinal thing that freaks people out. Okay, I'm not trying to freak anybody out, but the Bible says God chose us. It's, it's the Greek word, ek, lego. I love this. I don't know if we put the Greek word in there or not. Um, but, but there's a whole bullet point of, of uh, things that he, he chose you out of a list of people. And it's the Greek word, ek, legomai. And I know we did Legos last week in our study. Um, it's not that kind of Lego, so... Um, Lego is the first word you learn in, in um, did y'all do this too, Brother Kendall? In, in Bible college, it's the first word you learn in the Greek language is Lego, okay? And it means to say, to speak, to declare, to call unto someone. It actually just simply means to talk out loud, right? And ek Lego means to call someone out. Ek means out of. So a person who is, a person who has been, chosen by someone is called out of the line. And it's literally what the military does when they line up a bunch of guys and go, hey, I need some volunteers, you, you, and you. (laughs) That's what God does. He calls us to him. He calls us to be loved. He chose us out, the infinite, powerful, 
mighty God, verse two, chapter 2, we looked at how much he loves us, actually called us into that love. Um, so if you're in Christ today, he chose you. And you say, well, what if he doesn't choose some other people? I'm telling you, you can leave all that and you can wrestle with that all day long. Take me to lunch. We'll have a lot of long talks about it. I don't understand it all either. Okay, it's very God stuff. But I do know this. He's sent his son to die to choose you. And all you got to do is just accept that. And then you get to say, he chose me. He chose me before the foundation of the world. He chose me. That's how uh, valuable my soul is to him and why he loves my soul. Then look at verse 5. It says, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. I'm a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. You, as Christians, are adopted into his family. He loved you and adopted you as his son or daughter. How? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. That's just rich and beautiful. We can spend all day teaching on this, and I just don't want to because i got one more really fun point to go. Number five, or verse five says, actually at the end of verse five it says, and it was his pleasure and his will. It was his pleasure and will to choose you. That's just amazing. It was his pleasure and will. All this is written out in your notes. He redeemed you. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So he chose me, he loved me and adopted me. It was his pleasure to do so. Verse 7 says, He redeemed me through Jesus Christ his son. It also says, He forgave me. I owed a debt to God that I could not pay. Everybody in this building owes a debt to God you can never, ever, ever pay. But he wants, very much so, he wants to redeem you and forgive you of your sins. You simply have to trust him as your Lord and Savior. And then verse 8 says, I love this one, that he lavished on us his grace with all wisdom and understanding. He didn't just lavish his grace on us and go there. You're not even going to know what this is, but there it is. He literally lavished his grace on us and gave us the wisdom to understand his grace. Isn't that cool? We can talk about his grace. Now, you'll never get to the bottom of it. Every time I think I got a good handle on grace, I find something greater about his grace. But he redeemed us. He forgave us. He lavished his grace on us. Verse 9 says, he revealed his mysteries to us. And he made known to us the mysteries of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. He revealed it to us. I've asked you many times, and I'll ask you again because there's some folks here who may not, may not have heard me ask this question. How do you think you figured God out? <laughs> you really think you're that smart? You think you found God? No. God found you. God revealed himself to you and exposed enough of himself to you to make you go, huh, I'd kind of like to know. I'd like to be a part of that. And he, he reveals himself to us. And it actually says... He revealed us the mysteries. We were all enlightened by God. And it means we just get stuff. You ever watch news with, with a bunch of non-Christians around, like when you're standing in your workplace or whatever, and there's, or you're, you're, you're in a tire store or whatever, and you're watching the news, and non-Christians are trying to comment on stuff, and you're going, man, you just don't get it. You don't understand what that's all about at all. You ever do that? We were at the, a museum yesterday, and, and uh, at the... We were at Candace's museum yesterday at the Gulf Museum there. Uh, walked through, had a great time. You weren't there, by the way. We asked. Um, but we had a great time walking through the, what's the name of it again? The Gulf? Gulf Quest. Yeah, it's really cool. Maritime Museum. And uh, so we went through and saw a bunch of stuff, and they showed us this, this ball 
in the center of this room where they put all this video stuff onto it. It's really amazing to watch all that. And the guy, just us, so he got to show us a bunch of really cool stuff. Um, and I got to thinking at the end of that, how, how much does he know about, because he could turn that ball into, he could say, look, that's what Mars looks like. Boom, and it looks like Mars. Just big sphere. And he goes, this is, and he did, uh, what was his face? Venus, this is Venus. Poof. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. You know, and then he could show you all the saline currents all over the globe. He, he'd turn it into the earth and say, this is what the, this is what the saline, and then he showed all the hurricanes that have happened since 2005. And you could just watch the, a time span of the whole earth's weather for all that time on this deal. And you're standing right there, it's right in front of you. It's really amazing, 3D kind of stuff. And, uh, but I was fascinated, but then I got to thinking, you know, what does he really know, you know, about how God works in all of this? You know, how God deals with all of this stuff. And, and, uh, but you can be around non-Christians that don't know stuff. Christians, because God's revealed the mysteries to us, we know stuff. We do. And we get life at a whole new level if we invest in understanding. We get life at a whole new level. So then, of course, verse 3 that I read to you earlier just says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, right? So here's truth number four, and this is the one I really want to grab hold of you. So, so tighten up your brain for just a minute and listen to this beautiful passage from Jeremiah. I'd love for you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 1 and anchor to this. If you believe that <laughs> if you believe that God will just eventually give up on you, you haven't ever understood the Bible very good. And grace doesn't register with you. So, But I'm going to give you a new verse that will help you with grace. This is a verse, if you, if you believe in second chances like Larry, this is your verse. Okay? Jeremiah is going through a time with Israel where Israel, he's called out to Israel the prophecies. And God's, God's told him, to go, to, go to the people and tell them this. Go to the people and tell them this. They're in sin. They're going to get judged. It's going to get bad. All of the first part of Jeremiah is that. Jeremiah 17, 9. Man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the chapter right before this, right? Who can know it? And, and so Jeremiah's called out, but the people aren't turning. Israel's not turning. They're actually rebelling even more, taking foreign gods in. They're doing all kinds of terrible stuff. And so Jeremiah's confused by all that. He's brokenhearted as a messenger of God. The people just start getting it. So God said, Jeremiah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the potter's house. Look at verse 18. Chapter 18, verse 1. This is the word that came Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house. And there I'll give you a message. And so he went down to the potter's house and saw the potter working at the wheel. Okay? Now the potter's wheel is just like it hadn't changed in all these years. You can go online and watch a bunch of this. It's a spinning, usually wooden wheel. They put, they get clay, dry clay. They pack it into a ball. Okay, and you pack it real tight. It's very thick and heavy. They put it in the center of the wheel, and they put water on it. We had a guy come do this at our church in Birmingham. It was amazing to watch. In front of us, he made stuff. And the first thing he has to do, think about this imagery. The first thing he has to do to make it work is he has to get the clay, that's us, in the center of the wheel. He has to center our life with all that's around it. And so the potter... In this story, the potter represents God, takes clay, and he puts it in the center, and he gets it centered, right? And then, and then as the wheel spins, he can take his hands and shape that. Now, when we were in Birmingham and watched some guy, and I've looked his name up, he still does it, but um, it's hard to keep up with him. He doesn't have a lot of online stuff. But anyway, there's this guy that used to dress in the, that costume of the day, and he'd come do pottery right in front of you, 
put all his already made pottery out to display so you see the beauty of it. And he would just work with it. And I've told you the story before, but when we were, there was a church, our, our Sunday night services probably had 350 people in there, something like that. It's a church of 1,200, so our Sunday night was like 300, 350 people. We're all watching him do this, and he's describing what he's doing as a potter. And he made this beautiful, he, all of a sudden he's shaping this thing, and it comes up beautifully. I mean, this ball of mud just all of a sudden becomes this real cool jar-looking thing. Then he makes a kind of a top to it, and pretty soon it's turned out, and you're like, wow, he flared that with his hands. You know, and he's kind of working it and all this stuff, and he's talking away to us, and, and <clears throat> he's talking about the, how close the potter has to be to the clay and how the potter has to feel all the, all the bumps and all the places in there and has to know how much pressure it can take and how much not to put on it. And he's talking away, and we're all just, I mean, everybody in the place I know is just, wow, that's so cool, because he just pulls it right up, and the next thing he knows, it just flared out and beautiful, and you're like, he's going to make a great-looking vase out of that. And while he's talking, he just takes his hand, and he goes, smash, and flattens it right back down to a blob that's just not even centered anymore. And the whole place gasped, like, huh? why did you do that? What's wrong with you? And he goes, I wasn't your clay. That was my clay. Uh, we were like, well, yeah, you're, you're the potter. <laughs> we're just the idiots that are watching, right? Now watch the story. Go down to the potter's house, and I'm going to give you a message. So he went down to the potter's house and saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. There's a whole bunch of translations of this word in the Hebrew. It was ruined. One translation says it was ruined. Another translation says it was unusable. The, the clay that the potter was using wasn't working. It was, and one translation just says, I love this, says it was messed up. It was messed up. Another one says it, it turned out badly. It was spoiled. You ever feel like the first part of your life was just spoiled? Turned out badly? Something didn't go right? Now look at what it says. So I went down to the potter's house and saw him working the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. So the potter threw it away. He said, I'm going to give me some more clay. No. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best for him. That's what second chances are all about. God is for us. When, when, when we're a mess in his hands, you know what he does? He just goes, hey, i got a plan. Now, people watching go, oh, that guy's never going to be. Mm-mm. He is a mess. He is never going to be anything. He is not going to turn out good at all. And you can be watching and see the potter go, smash. Let me start over. Let me work on this a little different. Let me take a different approach to this. You understand how God works in our lives? God is for us, and he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't throw the clay away. He's not going to discard you if you've messed up, if you've made lots of bad choices in your life. Okay? Show of hands. You've made lots of bad choices in your life. He doesn't discard us and go, I need some new clay. He goes, no, let me work with you on that. And you know what a potter really says at the end of the day? When people go, what's that going to be? He goes, just wait and see. It's going to be beautiful. But I know alone what it's going to be. So here's the deal. The potter doesn't throw away the marred clay because it turned out badly, or one translation says it was spoiled. (laughs) It's just spoiled. 
clay's just spoiled or it's ruined. The potter doesn't throw away bad clay because he's the maker of the clay. He knows how to do this. So God remakes the clay into the purpose that he decides. He takes the worst mud messes of all of us and turns them into grace stories for us. You understand? He turns them into grace stories. That's the promise of your God who is for you, never against you. People think God's somehow against them. They haven't read their Bible. He is constantly, constantly wooing people to say, come on, turn back to me. I know you've... I know you think you should give up on me, but it's really, you're giving up on yourself. People give up on themselves long before they should. This is the ultimate passage of second chances because the, the potter's very personal with clay. He's very personal with clay. It's a very personal deal. By the way, it's a very slow process. It's not a, there's no microwave pottery out there. Real pottery takes a very long time to make on a wheel, very long time to sculpt, very long time to craft, and it takes hand pressure, lots of pressure. The potter has to put, potter alone knows what it's going to be, and he puts the clay under certain pressure, but the potter has to put pressure on the clay to make it beautiful. We get all frustrated about the pressures we're under sometimes, and the Lord's going, I'm trying to make you beautiful. Hang in there. I got this. Romans 5 says he'll never put more pressure on us than we can stand. He actually says the pressure is for our perfecting, right? Right? So the potter has to put pressure. Then he has to put heat on the clay because to really to, to make it a permanent deal, he has to put it into the fire. He has to put heat on it to make it beautiful. But, you know, we give up on ourselves way before that process happens. Sometimes we just look at the mud that we are, the mess that we've made or that we think we've made, and we go, you know. And I'm telling you, God doesn't give up. There's not one person in this room ever that God would give up on. Not one. You can tell all your friends that. You've never met a person God would give up on. Not one. doesn't matter how bad they are. That's the whole point of the cross was to pay for... How much of the sins of a person's sins does the cross pay for? How much? So why would he give up? He doesn't give up. We give up on ourselves. We give up on ourselves. That's the problem. God is for us. You can read stories like John Newton's story, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. He was, his whole pre, his young life story is horrible. Then he ends up on a slave ship as a young guy watching his family run slaves. And then he does slaves for years and mistreats and abuses, literally drowns slaves on purpose and does all kinds of terrible stuff. And eventually becomes a guy that advocates for slavery or advocates against slavery for abolition, and he eventually becomes a guy that writes a song that the whole world sings now, all the time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. When people were watching that guy's clay be formed, they're going, oh, he's never going to be anything but trouble. I don't know if you know Winston Churchill. Great story behind Winston Churchill. He was a little boy that was, his, his father um, was a, Probably, some people say he's probably the worst, meanest father that ever lived in Europe, ever. Can you imagine? He's probably the worst father ever. His mother um, had a horrible reputation of just being with any guy ever and a socialite that never had any boundaries. And eventually he, he was raised by his nanny. He had such a horrible lisp. He was made fun of all his life. He got kicked out of a bunch of schools for his rebellion and inattentiveness and all kinds of crazy stuff. 
But you know what the deal is? Winston Churchill literally stood between the destruction of an entire nation and a very evil force. Now, when he was on that wheel being made as a young man with a really crazy lift, he's a little short guy, he's real weird looking, he got made tons of fun of him. You read his, his storyline. He was made fun of all the time. But in reality, God said, wait till you see what I'm going to make out of this guy. He's going to save a nation. He's going to give speeches with his lisp. He's going to give speeches that are going to be rallying Christ for his nation to stand against the worst evil that ever came across that land. And he stood between the enemy with his voice and said, not today. Okay? See, God sees us as clay. And he's molding you. He loves you just like that. I want you to look at this last verse as Mary and Caleb come to sing the closing song. Um, and during the closing song, we, just, we turn the lights out um, in the sanctuary. And just, just during the closing song, I just really want you to meditate on uh, the words to this song that God actually cares for you. Psalm 40, verse 1 says, the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. If you, if you get your physical Bible out ever and look up this verse, under, over the word waited, I want you to put waited, waited. Because the Hebrew word means I waited and waited and waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me, heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. You think the psalmist understands that he's from mud and mire? He lifted me out of the slimy pit. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in him. When God takes mud from miry pits, that's all of us, and graciously molds us into what we're going to become, the nations will hear it. We can proclaim it to the nations, amen? God is for us. He's not against us. And we're going to let Mary sing. And I just want you to meditate on the, the truths of this psalm while she does. And then right at the end, we got something real special for you. We'll just do that right after she sings.